Hello, everybody. Welcome to From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. And congratulations to us, Nick and I. It's our 250th podcast. Wow, 250 podcasts. Amazing. And have we spoken to some superstars of the world of sport and some that are coming up, some that you didn't know about from... Trek tug of war for those of you who don't understand Afrikaans. We've done all sorts right here on From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Tonight, though, our 250th show looks back at an incredible sporting weekend, particularly on the rugby field. So let's start with last night's game and the backlash that Eddie Jones has come under back home after his team suffered Australia's heaviest, heaviest World Cup defeat. And they're on the brink of elimination from the tournament. And to be honest with you, it's not something that surprised me. It's not something that I think will have surprised anybody listening to the show and or anybody who has listened to the show during the times that we've previewed this World Cup and spoken about what's gone on. Australia went with a very young side, what Eddie Jones has described as a team that's for the future. Well, it's not the future that he's in. He's in the present, and he is taking an absolute whack. Now, only a mathematical chance of getting through. Julian Linden wrote in the Daily Telegraph, for the first time in the history of the Rugby World Cup, the Wallabies will fail to make it past the pool phase, plunging the struggling code into a crisis that it may never recover from. Oh, my God. Goodness, that is really some harsh words in the Australian media this morning. He went on to say a lot of the blame, and rightly so, will be directed at the head coach, Eddie Jones, though he is not the only culprit because this was a collective stuff up on an industrial scale, unquote. Former Wallabies coach Alan Jones also rounded not only on Jones, but also on the chairman of Australian rugby, Hamish McLennan who sacked Dave Rennie in January to bring the former Japanese and England coach back home. And it's not like Jones went back to Australia with a good record in England. The players were aimless to the point of embarrassment, he wrote. So whatever the so-called game plan was, it went out the window when they walked onto the pitch. Now, I know I'm giving you all the Australian media and what the Australian media have had to say, but let me tell you, Wales need to be given a lot of credit for the way they played last night. They were quite superb, especially after they lost their fly half with, what, 10 minutes or so of the match gone. They then had to bring on a fly half who hadn't played rugby for an awful long time. And the Australian head coach, Warren Gatland, says hard work is responsible for Wales turning crisis into joy. His team became the first side to reach the Rugby World Cup knockout stages following that big win. Now, six months ago, Welsh rugby was in a dark place as uncertainty over a deal between the Welsh Rugby Union and its regional clubs left players worrying about their futures. A sexism and racism scandal saw the Welsh Rugby Union chairman Steve Phillips resign while the players threatened to go on strike ahead of the Six Nations match against England. Senior stalwarts Alan Wynne-Jones, Justin Tapurik and Rhys Webb retired just months before the World Cup began, and look at them now. He said uh, things have unfolded with the Welsh Rugby Union and Welsh regions reaching a six-year deal. 
to ensure the financial security of the sport in the country. Wales, who finished uh, fifth in three of their last four Six Nations tournaments and in 2022, lost at home to Italy for the first time ever and were beaten by Georgia also for the first time. But look at them now. And let's be perfectly honest, when Wales were here in South Africa, I know South Africa didn't necessarily have a full-strength side out at the time, but the Welsh pushed the Springboks really, really hard. Now, talking about the Springboks, well, the Irish eyes are still smiling. <laughs> there we go from a song. Don't you know that song? Um, well, bleary-eyed Irish fans returned to work today after a weekend celebrating their 39 win over South Africa, just as if they had won the World Cup. But those with longer memories recognised it was a little early to start planning a Dublin bus parade. They've never got past the quarterfinals, have the Irish. Hovering in the background is their quarterfinal curse, their spectacular failure to have never won a knockout game in the history of the tournament, even when going into that phase on the back of massive pool wins. Now, it was a fantastic display of rugby, absolutely brilliant. To be honest, one of the best games of the tournament so far, but... It could have been oh so very different. Now, everybody in South Africa praises Jacques Dinaba and Rassi Rasmus and the seven-one split and all the the red lights and yellow lights and green lights and orange lights and call the lights whatever color lights you want and Rassi running on as a water boy etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But this commentator has got one problem. As much as I am a fanatical Springbok supporter like almost anybody in South Africa, besides a few people in the Cape who support the All Blacks, which is a historical thing from many, many years ago. Um, the one thing that I do want to make point of is the fact that at the end of the day, everything that Rossi and Jacques do, as good as it might sound, you have to go back to basics. You cannot be playing a flank at hooker and you cannot be playing somebody at fly half who is under the kind of pressure that Manny Libok is at the moment with regards to goal kicking. Now, I don't believe he's a bad kicker. In fact, in the United Rugby Championship, you might remember, he put over a kick in the dying seconds of the game to get the Stormers into the final. He kicked beautifully in the final two years ago. He kicked exceptionally well this year. But I think that bogey that is being put on him by the fact that people are complaining because he missed a kick or two um, has put added pressure onto the young man. And you do have a dilemma because his running game and the ability to pass the ball and get the back line moving, no criticism of that whatsoever. He has done superbly well in getting the Springbok back line moving. He has done great in breaking the line, especially bringing his centers in to play and they crash into the defense. But the first throw in to the line out when uh, we had our substitute flanker on as a hooker, that went awry in a very scorable position. Those kicks that both he and Fuff the Clack missed, and oh, how different the result would have been. However, I don't have a major issue with the result as it went, because I do believe that South Africa and the Springboks, in a way, without me having any disrespect to my favorite rugby team in the world, they've just come down a, a little peg or two, and they've realized that they are not unbeatable. And sometimes that's a very good thing. And hopefully they will take it forward and carry it on into the rest of the competition. The chances are, as things stand at the moment, that uh, they're going to play the All Blacks in the quarterfinal, which I guess, in a way, after the last performance we had against them, is something that's really important. The last thing you want to do is end up playing a team that's beaten you 
um, you know, before. This way we play the All Blacks, and then perhaps you never know. Um, or we play the French. Depends, of course, on how things go. So for me, I would prefer to play the All Blacks, but at the end of the day, you've got to beat every team in the World Cup to make your way through. So that was the two major, major results of uh, the weekend, ones that were of uh, great interest to the rest of the rugby world, two magnificent games as we expected them to be, both of them entertaining. And I'll be honest with you, it's about time that the referees got a little bit of a pat on the back because I thought both uh, referees in both matches did extremely, extremely well. They were both superb. Neither of them had any rash decisions. Neither of them got into any arguments. They controlled the game with great precision. They read the game well, and even Rossi afterwards complimented the referee in the Springboks game, and I thought uh, last night's match, the Welsh game, the referee was fantastic. So, 40 points to 6 is what the Welsh beat Australia. Scotland beat Tonga 45-17. The Scots did really well uh, in their game yesterday. They played some really attractive rugby. 13-8, the Irish uh, won against the Springboks, 13 points to 8. England beat Chile 71-0. Took a little while for that one to get going. And what a game between the two minnows of the sport, Georgia and Portugal. Both teams, in the dying moments, had an opportunity to win. Portugal had an opportunity to kick a penalty with the last kick of the match. And just before that, the uh, Georgians had an opportunity to convert a try, which would have put them 20 points to 18 ahead, a try that they scored to level the matters at 18 all, and then that penalty right in the last kick of the game that would have given Portugal their very first win ever in the World Cup. Well, it wasn't to be. 18 all is how that one ended. And then the game on Friday evening, Argentina beat Samoa 19-10. That was a bit of a rough and tough tumble game. A lot of mistakes from both sides. Argentina not playing the kind of football, rugby football, that um, we expected them to play. However, let's remember, of course, that Argentina are most probably now, after the demise of Australia, the third best team in the Southern Hemisphere after the Springboks and the All Blacks. So what does that mean? What do the results do for the pools and for the table? Well, let's have a look at that for you, shall we? And go through all the pools and let you know where the teams are and how and what they need to do going forward. So let's go to pool A. That, of course, is the pool with the host nation, France, that have played three games. They have 13 points. Second in that pool is Italy. They've played two games and they have 10 points. Then New Zealand are third in the pool, one win with a bonus point, five points to them. They've played two and lost one. They lost, of course, to France in the opening game. Then Uruguay and Namibia, well, they hold up the table in fourth and fifth place. Neither of those two sides have had a win. So obviously the New Zealand-Italy game is going to be a crunch one between the two sides. Don't be surprised if Italy run New Zealand uh, wild and hard. They might be able to put up a bit of a show there, the Italians. Then in Pulby, um, it is Ireland that lead the group with a perfect record, um, 14 points from their three games. Of course, no bonus point against South Africa. The Springboks obviously didn't pick up a bonus point um, for it for the number of tries, but they did for the fact that they lost by less than seven points. So the Springboks have 10 points from their three games, two uh, wins and a loss. The Scots, well, they have five points from their two games. Tonga have played two, and they are yet to get off the mark, as are 
Romania. So Ireland and South Africa, most probably the two sides that will go through from that group. Then Pool C, Wales top the group. They are now qualified. Now Fiji obviously uh, have a really, really good opportunity to get through to the uh, next round of the competition with Australia third, Georgia and Portugal fourth and fifth. Two points apiece after their draw. Now, in Pool D, England, Samoa, Japan, Argentina, and Chile. Um, the Argentinians will be looking for a good result in their next game. Samoa, five points from their two games, as do Japan, and four points to Argentina. That group, obviously the most competitive at the moment. So there you are. Oh, that is the situation. That is what it looks like uh, in the Rugby World Cup. What fixtures are there this week? Well, there are a couple of fixtures coming up. Um, some Rather important ones, to be uh, honest. Wednesday, Uruguay play Namibia, a game of no consequence. Thursday, Japan play Samoa. Friday, big one, New Zealand versus Italy. Massive game there. If the Italians can pull a win over the All Blacks, it will be a big shock. But, my goodness, can the All Blacks be knocked out of the World Cup at the qualifying stage? Or at least at the uh, knockout stage? Oh, my goodness goodness. Then on Saturday, Argentina played Chile, Fiji played Georgia, and Scotland played Romania. And then on Sunday, it is Australia against Portugal, and the Springboks will come up against Tonga. Now, the word that I'm getting from the Springbok camp is that that is when we are going to see the change at fly half, and South Africa will be apparently bringing Andre Pollard into the fold when South Africa play Tonga next week. That will be about three or four weeks in terms of extra recovery time for him. He did play last Friday, but he is going to, as we understand, be included in the Springbok side. Whether he'll start or just come on, I don't know. Um, I would perhaps think that um, he will most probably come on during the game. But no panic in the South African camp after the 13-8 loss in that bruising game. The morning press conference this Monday morning, no word from the Springbok camp of any injuries, which is a fantastic bit of news. Look, they don't necessarily always tell you what's actually going on in the camp. But you know what? They do their best to keep us up to date. So no panic in the camp. Uh, They, of course, are now uh, having a couple of days off, more than that be honest with you, they've been very honest that Ireland deserved the victory with their heroic defence, breakdown dominance and the ability to take their chances. South Africa inaccurate in the opposition's 22 and off the kicking team, missing three penalties and a conversion. Those 11 wasted points lays bare the headache they face. Who must they now choose between the dynamism with a ball in hand of Money Libok or the accuracy of the kicking tee of Andre Pollard, who's returned from a calf injury but doesn't offer the same skills in attack. Now, Rossi Rasmus has said that Andre will play this weekend against Tonga in Marseille, but let's see how he does the other stuff in the game. I presume that what he was talking about there was the fact that uh, how will he run the line? How will he get the team forward? Now, his inclusion could herald a return to the formula of the 2019 World Cup success, squeezing penalties out of teams with forward muscle and building scoreboard pressure through kicks at goal. But Erasmus insists they will not continue to select him unless they are certain he can bring an all-round game to the team. Erasmus also said, please remember he's not Superman. 
four weeks ago, he was totally not ready to play rugby. And he's only played 40 minutes of rugby since. I say he can't just come onto the field and do goal kicking, tackle pass, kick off sidesteps, handoffs, and clean out at the rucks. Well, Superman can do that, so why can't Andre Pollard do that? All right, that's uh, the Rugby World Cup out of the way. Let's turn our attention out to uh, one of the other major events of the weekend. He is back. Well, nobody thought he'd gone very far. Max Verstappen, he is incredible. What a drive, what a performance, and well done to the Red Bull Racing Team. They have taken the Constructors title so early in the season. Formula One leader, he ran away, did Verstappen with the Japanese Grand Prix from pole position. His dominant Red Bull team secured the Constructors title for the second year in a row. Now, the victory at Suzuka was the 13th in 16 races for Verstappen and left him on the brink of a third world championship after his teammate Sergio Perez failed to finish. How does that work? I mean, I've been watching Formula One motor racing for such a long time. And you think of the Rosberg-Hamilton days and even Bottas-Hamilton while Hamilton was so dominant. At least there was a teammate who pushed him it just seems as though when Max is on form, Perez is so out of form. When Max is not on form, Perez does pick up the pieces. Why is it not one two one two every single race? I have absolutely no idea. Even in qualifying, they are four or five places apart. A second, a second and a half in Formula One motor racing is a massive distance. It's like two or three rugby fields, the distance every lap. So you can imagine when you're 30 or 40 or 50 seconds ahead at the end of a race doing 320 kilometers an hour, you're an awful long way behind. And uh, that is the, the problem with uh, Sergio Perez at the moment. But the McLarens of Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri, second and third Piastri on the podium for the very first time. Can they challenge before the end of the year? Now, the advantage that Red Bull have is that if in the sprint race at the next Grand Prix, Max can win the world driver's title. That's correct. So early, so like eight races to go in the season, he can win the title in a sprint race. Well, if that happens, remember that then Red Bull can concentrate solely on the car for next year, while all the other teams are still concentrating on this year's cars of Red Bull and everybody else are going to be chasing them again. So who else can come through? Well, there's a big battle for second, third, and fourth in the Constructors' Championship, kind of in control um, in terms of the Drivers' Championship. But you never know. You never know. A week after the next race, uh, Max Verstappen will celebrate his 26th birthday, a win, Red Bull's 15th win of the season. Now, McLaren's first double podium with team orders ultimately deciding the positions on strategy cemented their growing status as the closest challengers to the dominant Red Bulls as they continue. Fernando Alonso complained over the radio after an early pit stop. His words were, they've thrown me to the Lions. He was eighth and ahead of Alpine's Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly. Verstappen suffered wheel spin at the start, but kept the McLarens behind. Norris passed Piastri to slot into second place. There was immediate chaos. Safety car deployed for three laps due to debris on the track after a number of clashes, including Perez and Hamilton, who got together. So well done, Max Verstappen. Well done, Red Bull. 
Young Verstappen to win the driver's title for 2023. Okay, on to the world of golf. Shall we go there? Because this week, of course, sees the Ryder Cup and the curtain raiser, if you like, um, to the Ryder Cup is the Solheim Cup. Now, the Solheim Cup is the ladies' version of the Ryder Cup. It was magnificent. What a competition. How close can it be? Spanish star Carlotta Segunda was the home heroine as she birdied the 16th and 17 holes to beat Nelly Corda of the United States and secure the point that ensured Europe retained the Solheim Cup. Europe, who trailed 4-0 after Friday's opening session, needed to split the last day's singles at the Finca Cortesin in Spain to gain a tie and retain the team trophy. American Lexi Thompson beat Europe's Emily Pedersen in the final match to end a thrilling competition 14-all. Now, due to the fact that the Europeans had the title, a draw was good enough for them to retain the title. It was the first time the matches have ended in a draw and the first time Europe has held the cup three times in a row. And did they celebrate? My goodness. Secunda was all square with three to play. She held from four feet at the 16th and two feet at the 17th. And she was congratulated by Spain's King Philip and in turn thanked the European captain, Suzanne Pedersen. I love Suzanne, I love Spain, and I love the Solheim Cup. Pedersen, who famously held the winning putt at Glen Eagles in Scotland four years ago, was crying with joy. So well done to the Europeans. They, of course, are back in Spain this weekend when they get underway for the Ryder Cup, Europe against the United States. A couple of players missing because of the whole live golf story, etc., etc., but uh, it's still going to be at. Absolutely fantastic. Now, Japan's Hisasune, um, he is the new French Open champion. He, uh, Ryo Hisasune, made a bat nine charge to claim the French Open, became only the third Japanese golfer to win on the DP World Tour. He's absolutely as wide as can be. He was victorious there. Of course, the other bit of golf over the week besides Europe retaining the Solheim Cup, the Japanese player winning the French Open. And it was Bryson DeChambe who edged his compatriot to win the Live Golf Chicago. Who began the day eight adrift, fired an eight under 63 in the closing round at the Rich Harvest Farms in suburban Chicago to finish the 54-hole tournament. On 13 under par 200, it was good enough to give the 30-year-old American a one-stroke triumph over Mark Leishman and India's Lahiri, who led most of the last round and would have forced a playoff if he had parred the closing hole. It made for bittersweet victory for Deshambe, captain of the triumphant Crusher's team, whose lineup included Lahiri. He wanted to be in a playoff with him, but he worked his butt off all year, and he was very humble in victory to Shambi, made six birdies on his back nine and birdied the par five second, his penultimate hole to grab a share of the lead on 13 under. And uh, Lahiri stumbled with a bogey at the par three 15. At 18, Lahiri left a long birdie attempt short and sent his par putt to the left of the hole. Okay, now let's turn our attention before we end our 250th podcast tonight with football. Yep, let's go to the English Premier League. 
And let's start with the results of the matches played over the weekend. In reverse order, and Newcastle United last night had an absolute field day. Eight. That's right. 8-0 victory away from home over Sheffield United, a record for Newcastle United. The most number of goals they've scored in an away Premier League game. And uh, it just shows the difference between a team that's hovering around the top half of the table and a team that's rock bottom and have just come up from a lower division into the Premier League. It is a massive massive gap and that's why you need to take your hat off not because my executive producer Nick Mons is a Nottingham Forest fan but it is a massive boost to Nottingham Forest who've managed to stay up last year and albeit they lost over the weekend against the number one team in Europe in the world most probably Manchester City they have managed to stay up because I can tell you right now It will be an absolute miracle if Sheffield United stay up. And Burnley and the other team that came up with Luton Town, it looks as though for the first time in an awful long time that the three teams that came up are going to be the three teams that most probably go down. Burnley have had the experience of coming into the Premier League and actually staying in the Premier League before um, and keeping their place for quite a while. And then, of course, the season before last got relegated again. Um, But it's going to be a massive, massive task for them along with Sheffield United and Luton to stay up. Everton are helping them along, although Everton did get a win. Liverpool 3, West Ham United 1. Brighton 3, Bournemouth 1. Brighton had to come from goal to nil down to uh, win the game 3-1. Chelsea 0, Aston Villa 1. Can you believe Chelsea just cannot get going? I don't know what it is there. They just have this unbelievable non-ability to perform. And that, of course, is really, really hindering them. Another loss at home to Aston Villa. Can't fire the manager again. Unbelievable. And then an absolute thriller. Absolute thriller between Arsenal and Spurs. Yesterday afternoon, they shared four goals. I don't want to speak too soon for Spurs, but they really do look like a side that can compete this year. I know they've flattered to deceive. They do brilliantly in the first half of the season, but they showed such tenacity to be able to come from a goal behind on two occasions and level matters almost immediately after Arsenal scored and held out for a two-all draw in a pulsating London derby. And then a Saturday evening, well, Manchester United got a 1-0 victory away from home against Burnley. A winner's a winner's, they say, but not convincing. Not convincing at all. Very disappointed in my team. I'm very happy to say that I support them and always will do and always have through thick and thin. I waited 26 years for them to win a title, Premier League title, that is. And then, of course, they went and won a million. And now they back. I don't know what's going on there. Although they did get a win out of the game, but not convincing. At all, not at all. Then the other matches, where did Everton find three? Out of nowhere, 3-1 over Brentford. The Bees got stung by their opponents away from home. Everton, great performance by them. And I guess their fans will be hoping that this is the start of their season. Luton, first points, one-all draw against Wolverhampton Wanderers. That was a great result for them at their tiny little ground. One-all, Crystal Palace and Fulham in the other London derby. They drew 0-0 and Manchester City on uh, path to glory again so early in the season. Complete 100% record again. They 
completely outplayed Nottingham Forest in the first half. But Forest did very, very well, I might add, in the second half to keep the score down to 2-0 after the halftime break. They never conceded another goal, but they didn't really look as though they were going to score one either. So what does the table look like at the moment? Well, as I mentioned, unbeaten and a clear 100% record, 18 points from six games, played 6-1-6, 16 goals for, they've only conceded three goals with 18 points, top of the table, Manchester City. In second place, Liverpool, who have won five, drawn one, also unbeaten, as are Spurs and Arsenal, the other teams that are unbeaten this season, but 16 points for Liverpool. Brighton have played six, they've won five, lost one, goals for 18, eight against, and they have 15 points in third place. Then Spurs are in fourth place. Also six played, four wins and two draws. Unbeaten this season, along with Arsenal. They sit with 14 points. They're ahead of Arsenal on goal difference. Aston Villa have lost two, but they've won four. They're in 12th place. West Ham are seventh. Newcastle are in eighth place. Manchester United are ninth. And Crystal Palace are in tenth. That's the top half of the table. The bottom half of the table sees Fulham and Nottingham Forest in 11th and 12th. And the Nottingham Forest fans will be delighted with the start that they've had to the season. Up in 12th place. And if they can stay there for the rest of the season, they will have no problems uh, staying in the Premier League for a third year in a row. Brentford in 13th, Chelsea in 14th place with only five points. Everton have now got four points from their six games. Wolves have four points from their six games. And then Bournemouth, three points from their six games. And then Luton, Burnley and Sheffield United, the three teams that I'm talking about that came up from the championship, look like they are contenders to go down back to the championship next season. Luton and Burnley have played five games. They have one point. Sheffield United have played six games and they have one point. Those three teams have all had a draw. That's the only point that they have for the season. So that's the Premier League. That is the weekend wrap. And our 250th episode of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Hope you've enjoyed tonight's program. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow evening for more from the boardroom to the locker room. Until then, be nice to each other. Bye for now.